In the face of a world of complexity, flux, and political volatility, how should we hold ourselves? I mean by this, should we choose to be hopeful because of Biden and the possibilities of COP26, or hopeless as we read about Gaza or the growing authoritarianism of China? As we think about how COVID has impacted the poorest and will continue to deepen local and global inequality, should we be enraged with revolutionary zeal? Or when we consider why people disagree with us, why other communities or countries feel embattled or suspicious, should we seek to understand, to search for common language, common ground? Should we dedicate ourselves to the deep structural changes we undoubtedly need, or instead focus on what we can do here and now to make a difference, however small? I've just read a book that really helps me think about all these issues, a book that's thoughtful and clever, but also incredibly warm and humane. And I'm delighted that the author of that book is my latest guest. Welcome to the podcast that tries to make sense of our new reality. This is Bridges to the Future with Matthew Taylor, brought to you by the RSA. So I've been joined by Ece Temelkuren, who is one of Turkey's best-known novelists, political commentators. Her journalism has appeared in lots of places, including The Guardian, The New York Times. She won the Penn Translate Award for her novel, Women Who Blow on Knots, that I'm halfway through and loving. And she's the author of How to Lose a Country, The Seven Steps from Democracy to Dictatorship, which is a very influential book. But she's here with us now to talk particularly about her new book, Together, 10 Choices for a Better Now, which is an absolutely wonderful book. So, Eche, how are you? Oh, thank you, Matthew. I'm fine, you know, surviving. <laughs> thank you for all the nice words you said about me. Where? Just tell us where you are, Eje. Where are you in the world? I'm in Zagreb, although Zagreb today looks like a little bit of London, pretty heavy rain. I'm in Croatia. One of my best friends is Croatian, so I've always, I'm, I'm desperate to visit Croatia. It sounds like a fantastic country, and I'm sure it's got great strengths, but you're not, that's not your country of origin, you're Turkish. Tell us about the journey that has led to you living in Zagreb. Oh, wow, Matthew. It was 2016. I don't know if you remember, there was this coup attempt in Turkey in July. After that, Turkey became quite unbearable for people like me who are critical of the regime. And meanwhile, I published the book, the first English book, Turkey, the Insane of Melancholy. Somehow the publication of that book coincided with the coup attempt. So I get all the media limelight. One day I was going back from London, from the book events, back to Turkey. And while I was crossing the passport line, the passport officer spent too much time on my passport. And that was the time when the opposing voices were, you know, in several ways oppressed. And one of the ways was confiscating their passports. And I thought, okay, now it's time they're going to confiscate my passport. And then she screamed. She said, oh, Eje Tamelkron, can we take a selfie? And then I remember my, you know, my face half crying, half laughing. That was the time I decided to leave Turkey because I couldn't really bear this extremes, emotional extremes. So I came to Zagreb and since five and a half years now, it has been my home. Although I have a difficulty in becoming local in anywhere, even in my homeland. So 
it is like any other country I lived in, like Tunisia, Beirut, Paris, Oxford. It's it's it feels temporary, but it is still home now for me. And do you want to? Do you hope to? Do you believe that you will be able to return to Turkey in a way where you'll feel safe and able to fully express yourself? <laughs> Absolutely. You know what? I'm like I'm not sure if I want to return, but I want to be able to return. That's for sure. But once you kind of lose your home, it sticks to you. I think I don't want to be called an exile. I reject that word because it's a big word. And it's, you know, once you're an exile, you're always an exile, even if you go back home. But still, I want to be able to go back home. But then this is not the most sexy line in my CV. It has become so for many Westerners, I know, like having to leave the country. I try to take it as part of this journey. I lived in several countries, as I said before, and I'm trying to take this part of my life as a part of the bigger journey. But yes, sometimes I do think that I had to, you know, I had to define the country like a table full of loved ones and the West entities surrounding that table that I don't really, that we don't really know about. So, yeah, I'm trying to make that table portable, trying to open it like in different several places on the planet. But still, the table itself belongs to Turkey, that's for sure. So let's let's turn to the book. This is a book, the way I describe it is, when I read it, it felt partly that you were sitting next to me on the sofa as I was reading it. It felt almost that you were reading it to me because it felt so kind of personal and powerful and yet also frustrating because because it created that sense. I almost felt I should be able to turn to you and ask you what you meant by things, which is why it's a great thrill to be able to do that with you now. So the, the book is structured around these 10 choices and I want to explore three or four of them. So let's start where you start, I think, which is with choosing faith over hope. So first of all, what's the difference between faith and hope, Eche? Oh, several differences. One, there can be situations, conditions where there is no hope, but you cannot take out the faith and the ability to create faith from the humans. And second, I think hope is too fragile a word for these harsh times that we are going through. Faith is more determined. It's a commitment. And also it is very close to bone. And hope, you know, provides us with this, you know, binary situation, whether there is hope or not. Whereas faith provides us with the reason to act, a formidable reason to act. So I think we need faith more than hope at these times. I keep hearing, you know, the need for hope, especially after How to Lose a Country was published. I went around the world, gave speeches, talked to the audiences and so on. And in, in different languages, all the audiences, almost after every talk, asked the same thing. So where is hope? And, you know, it, it started to annoy me in a way because I thought the, the word started to become an emotional crutch. And I wanted to ask them, so what if there is no hope? What will you do? Are you going to lie down and die? But then I realized that they are asking for something else, maybe. They're asking for a reason to act because everyone, without even knowing, know that they have some power, but they have to sacrifice something to show that power to change the world. And I think they wanted to know, they wanted to have a good reason 
to sacrifice themselves for that change that they are hoping for. There's this sentence in the book, which I think goes to the heart of this, which is, you say, sooner or later, we would have to recognize that what turns humans to rags and tatters is the loss of direction and our ability to believe that we are competent enough to find a new one. I mean, I get this distinction between faith and hope. And for me, I'm just writing a set of very long blog posts based upon a set of ideas that I've been using for many, many years. And the one I've just written this week is about fatalism. So without boring you with my theory, but I argue that human beings are fundamentally driven by some very kind of basic needs. And one of those is authority. We do what we're told. And the second is kind of belonging and values. We do what we do because of the kind of person we want to be, the kind of tribe that we belong to. And we do what we do because of what we want for ourselves as unique individuals. But there is a fourth kind of predisposition to the world, and that is fatalism, which is we don't do anything or we don't think that anything we do will make much difference. And I think that one of the problems of the modern world is that we are intrinsically fatalistic animals. That is part of who we are. That's part of how we respond to the world, partly perhaps because we are aware of our own mortality. But we don't know what to do with fatalism in the modern world. We don't know. It's not legitimate. You don't get a job by saying, well, I'm fatalistic or even realistic, probably. And I think that the difference between faith and hope is that faith is something which lives with fatalism. It's something which accepts the reality of human existence, the pathos of human existence, the likelihood that most of our great aspirations and plans will not come true. But faith says, but don't worry, carry on, because in a sense, there's nothing else to do but to carry on. Whereas hope encourages us to suppress fatalism, to say, well, we don't need to be fatalistic. You know, maybe we can cure all illnesses and live forever and bliss can be everything. And so that, that for me, is the reason why I prefer the notion of faith to hope, because faith is something which can live with the fatalistic part of our own souls and of human existence. I think in the intersection point of fatalism and faith stands our need to produce meaning and our ability to believe in that meaning. And all those, you know, big drives for humankind to survive stands upon that. And we, you know, certainly create those meanings through narratives, through stories. And we are now living, as you know, you mentioned, we are living in an era where neither fatalism nor faith and even the need for meaning is considered as the pillar of human existence. So I'm looking at today's dominant system we call capitalism, neoliberalism, whatever, with all its tentacles in culture, in social life, in our understanding of ourselves. And I see that there is no story there. There is no story that produces a meaning. Who is the good man in our system? Who is the good? Who is the, you know, the moral man in our system? There is this lack of meaning which makes us ask about hope because a word with feathers, whereas we should be asking, why am I living for? But we are living in a very cynical age and cynicism is one of the pillars of this system and that doesn't allow us to speak about meaning. And that is one of the reasons I chose these words. These are the words that might sound naive to today's 
you know, dominant culture, like love, faith, I don't know, the other words as well, dignity and so on. And I wanted to ask the question, why these words now sound, you know, naive to us or unnecessary? Yeah, we're living in a system that makes us think that the most crucial questions of humankind became unnecessary or irrelevant. Yeah, and the kind of interesting question here is, is it the relationship between faith and religious belief? Because we normally talk about faith in the context of of religion. And I'm not a believer. I often wish that I was, but yet I form a kind of distinction between good religion and bad religion. And, and for me, again, good religion and good faith is based upon a willingness to accept the nature of the human condition and not to evade it. Francis Bufford is a wonderful novelist and, and writer. He he once wrote a really powerful defense of Christianity in which he described Christianity as the religion for people who know they're going to fuck everything up. <laughs> and I thought that was a wonderful idea that that was your belief, but that didn't interfere with your faith. The defeat, fallibility, our flaws don't take away from our need to have meaning and purpose. Whereas, as I say, the notion of hope can sometimes sound like it's a way of saying that we know we can strive for perfection. And without, and the danger of that notion of hope is it's once hope does not deliver, we just abandon it. Whereas faith is not something that you abandon if it's, if it's real. Yeah, I'm like obviously faith as the concept, it has been monopolized for quite a long time by religion. That's why we do not want to talk about it. It has the habit of getting out of hand. That's why progressive politics has been quite distant from this word, except for Latin Americans, which is another story. And I am not the first one who thought about the secular faith, faith in humankind, replacing the religious faith or being a good company to religious faith. It has been going on since Spinoza. But, you know, in this age, I think we have to think about it because of the perils of this century. One of the things that struck me lately was during the pandemic, people started posting footage of animals taking over the city centers when, during the lockdowns. I don't know if you remember. From Argentina, from you know India, from wherever, from Turkey, everybody started looking at the world and seeing this world without humans and in a very dangerous way, liking the non-existence of humans in that world. And I thought, okay, this is a very symbolic moment of humankind in 21st century. We do not believe in ourselves anymore. We do not like ourselves anymore. We are like certain that we fucked up everything. Especially the young generation, I think, believes that, that, you know, the generations before them could not do enough. And now they're, you know, left with this world, which is collapsing. So I am trying to make an argument against that. We are not that bad. We did not fuck everything, actually. We did not fuck up everything. We have to include humankind's aspirations to the history of humankind so that we can really, again, believe in humankind and start doing something for it and having faith in it. And also, there is the fact that we're living in an age where politics of emotions or emotions of politics is becoming extremely dominant. It is mostly used by right-wing populists, but as progressive people, as people who really think that there is a better choice than the, you know, 
ancient greatness or whatever, we have to think about these words. We have to be brave enough to use these words within the realm of politics. Yeah, the book is yellow, as you know, very yellow. It looks like a very happy self-help book. (laughs) But I did want to talk about the self in the 21st century before getting into what, you know, uh, practical solutions we can think about. Because something is happening to us. You know, the system is collapsing, the planet is collapsing, and something is happening to self. And we have to keep the self together in this, you know, age of anxiety, age of fear. Otherwise, we cannot come together anyway. I mean, I want people to understand that although Together is a philosophical book and very deep in its thinking. It's also very entertaining and includes lots of stories of you as you're traveling around the world and meeting people. And in this chapter, the chapter on Faith Over Hope, I love the insight that you gained from a tour in Bristol and the connection that you made between the fact that we should judge humanity not necessarily only by what it achieves, but what it aspires to. Just share that story with us because I loved it. I was in Bristol as, you know, as a guest of Bristol Festival of Ideas. And meanwhile, I saw this book stand and there was a book called Unbuilt Bristol. And then I was talking to this lady who's selling the books and she told me that this is the most popular touristic tour in Bristol. And it was about those buildings or those projects that were planned but could not be built. So people were actually going to places where there was nothing. So I thought, what would a walk in an unbuilt world look like? you know, made of our aspirations, built with our aspirations. It's a good exercise of thought. I mean, like, what would happen if, let's say, Black Panthers were not vanished from the history? What would happen all those progressive people from Middle East were not tortured or killed? Or what would happen in Iran if the leftists were, you know, in power with the radical Islamists? You know, several other things. It is a nice way to think because it can provide us with the answer what kind of a world we want to live in. Let's turn to a, another of your kind of dichotomies. And this is where you say choose dignity over pride. And I was thinking I most associate the word pride in politics with, with gay pride, with annual you know march or carnival or, or whatever. And I, I was thinking if you called it gay dignity, it would almost seem apologetic rather than celebratory. So tell us again what you see as the difference between dignity and pride. Now I'm thinking, you know, Matthew, I'm like, I chose all these very, very dangerous words because the other day I was talking to two male friends from Brussels. I was talking about joy, joy of dignity and so on. And one of them said, you know what, whenever you say joy, it reminds me of pornography. And the other one said, it reminds me of evangelists. So yeah, (laughs) pride and dignity are such words as well. But, you know, we are seeing the clash of these two words when we look at the global politics in general. The pride is represented by those right-wing populists or, you know, popping up all around the world. They're always promising to mend the pride of their people, uh, of the real people and so on. They want the greatness back, the great pride back and so on. Whereas there's another mass of people or masses of people all around the world shouting out the word dignity in different languages, from Black Lives Matter to Hong Kong, uh, from Turkey to Russia or Belarus. I think 
it is very natural that these two words clash with each other on political realm because they are actually opposite. They are almost antonyms of each other. They sound like, you know, very close, like pride, dignity, but actually pride accommodates a lot of violence and oppression and pride needs an other to either oppress or to recognize the worth of the self, whereas dignity is the self-worth which everybody has to have or should have. So dignity requires embracing everyone because dignity is not about the other. Dignity requires the word together, whereas pride requires us against them. So if you create a world, if you want to create a world with dignity, you have to change the entire system. Whereas if you want your pride back, you, it is quite easy. You can oppress the other or can you can make the other kneel before you and your pride is back. So the violence that pride calls for is what is, you know, ruining the entire politics at this point, I think. Whereas there are those voices that we have to hear who are shouting out for dignity and human love. So one of the points that you make in this chapter that I thought was really powerful was that one of the ways that you enable people to have a sense of dignity is not by giving them things, but by asking things of them. And I was reminded of a point made by a good friend of mine, Dame Louise Casey, who has worked on a whole variety of initiatives, very difficult issues. The government brings her in when there's a really difficult issue because she has a capacity not only to think about good policy, but to connect with people. And in the work that she did many years ago on troubled families, families that face multiple kind of issues and are finding it very difficult to cope and engage with officialdom, one of the things that she would do with those families is that the second a family was in any way starting to kind of get things a bit better, just things starting to improve. They hadn't sorted everything out, but just a sense of things coming back. The first thing she would do was ask them to help another family. And this was because of all the things that had been given to these families, the welfare benefits or the counselling or the training or the rules or the regulations or the prosecutions, all the kind of mixture of paternalism and authoritarianism they'd been treated to by the state, Nobody had ever treated them as people who had any efficacy, who could actually do anything. And so when Louise said to them, you know, things are starting to look up for you. How about helping the family along the road? It was incredibly powerful for them. And I think you agree with that idea, Eche, but I think you've also got your own more personal example in the chapter. Well, yeah, I know this through several other stories, but I also know this through my personal experience. I came to Zagreb and I have beautiful friends here, not many, but they're extraordinary people. And they help me. They help me a lot. But then after a while, after a short while, actually, I noticed that nobody's asking help from me, which is completely unprecedented. <laughs> so I really wanted to help them. And everybody thought that, my friends thought that I was the one to be helped out. So that kind of broke my dignity a lot. And I think Everybody, especially the refugees today, Syrian or you know, other from coming from other countries, they want to help to the societies that they are becoming part of because it is proving their self-worth, not for the other people actually, but for themselves. Because this is how we feel human by helping other humans. 
so young. And I learned this through this, you know, I wrote a novel called Banana Sounds. It's not in English yet. And there were these garbage collectors that I loved. I helped them through my writing and so on because they wanted to organize whatever. So one day they came up to me and said, oh, we, you know, we learned that your book is coming out. We want to help you. And I said, like, how will you help me? And then they, you know, a few days later, they wrote the name of my novel on the walls of every big city in Turkey. It is vandalism, actually. I shouldn't be talking about this. But that was the time I noticed how proud, how happy they were, intrinsically joyful they were when they were bragging about how they painted the walls and so on. It was a very good story about how humankind actually operate. Even those who doesn't have something, they always have something to give to other people. We have to remember this now and then, I think. Yeah, I completely agree. And it's just one of those lessons we have to keep learning. Now, let's turn to let's turn to a different distinction, a different chapter. And this was one that I found kind of the most surprising, which was the chapter called Choose Attention Over Anger. And it contained two surprises for me, I guess. The first is that you are... I mean, you're not an activist in the sense of kind of manning the barricades, but you're an activist in the sense that you've used your journalism for very political ends and you have given support in all sorts of ways to people trying to make a difference to the world. So here is an activist who rejects anger. And secondly, you are an artist. You are a wonderful novelist with incredible imagination. And here you are as an artist who is critiquing emotion as the basis for action. So explain your nervousness about anger and also about the idea that the reference point for how we feel about the world should be how we feel. Well, first of all, I'm like calling me an activist might be a little bit unfair for the real activists. So <laughs> yeah, I'm only writing and, you know, I do think that writing in its essence is opposing to the authority or being critical of authority is an inherent aspect of writing anyway, or storytelling. I'm not sure if I am criticizing the emotion itself. I am mostly criticizing the massive expression of anger and how anger, our expression of anger became commodified by social media and how this created the banality of anger. One thing is very clear to me, anger is like, it's the most delicious <laughs> of emotions for sure, but it is a passing by emotion. You cannot be angry all the time. Anger is not a sustainable emotion at all. And overrated emotions is not good for, you know, for politics either. History does not really care about how we feel or how angry we are. And when I say replace anger with attention, I mean active attention. I mean putting our expressions of anger to a side and understanding the mechanism in order to rewind that mechanism or you know break the loop. So yeah, it's not that I lack anger. Of course, I get angry and so on. But anger creates the illusion of political engagement for many people especially on social media. That is not political engagement. And if you look at the real activists who are on the streets or who are on their computers organizing people towards a goal, they're not angry because they do not have time to be angry because they are trying to do something. And also, I do think that, you know, I learned this from my personal experience and I also 
indeed around the world. Those who are in survival mode, in which we are all in, I think, do not have the luxury of being angry. They are going on with their lives and they are hurting with their broken dignity and they want somebody to tell them what to do or how to do, how to change the system. So it is not anger that will change the world, but it is our active attention that will change the world because attention asks for action. Actually, you know, the other day somebody asked me, is this a self-help book? And I, I said, like, I wouldn't mind if it helped someone, but actually it's doing something opposite of a self-help book. I'm asking for help. I am asking for help to pay attention and to change things. So, you know, one of the central issues in the book is attention. So, yeah, I want people to understand what I mean when I say pay attention. Yeah, and I'm so glad you mentioned social media because it seems to me that that's one of the big problems of social media is that it's a very effective tool for the spreading of anger and it's not, generally speaking, a very effective tool for the focusing of attention. So really important. One final, I could talk to you all day, but one final chapter. And this is the one which I found the most difficult to fully grasp. I got there, I think. but It's not one that, I, I mean, other chapters I kind of thought, yes, tell me more. But here I was going, no. What exactly are you getting at here? But So when you talk about choosing enough over less, explain what you mean by that. <laughs> I knew you were going to ask this. You know what? Well, first of all, chapter tells about economy of less and how it is not enough in today's complex world. So we have to come up with the word. We have to come up with the idea of enough and we have to focus on the idea of enough as the progressives to run the global economy and so on. But I have to tell you something. While writing this book, I read several economy you know, books, one of them being Piketty's big giant <laughs> book, Capital for 21st Century. And I always suffer, and I see people suffering as well from this. We do not know economy. I'm talking about the you know, progressives, I'm talking about the leftists and so on. And it, it has a historical you know, reason. Uh, after 1980s, when there was no more an alternative, I think we somehow pushed aside, we focused our attention on cultural criticism. I mean, like, I wish we studied economy as much as we studied Lacan or Bourdieu. So that chapter about enough and less actually calls people to study actual economy, especially today's, you know, complex economy. And I leave it there because <laughs> I, you know, it, it, it was very hard for me to write that chapter. I really had to study that one. But it is most about regulated economies, like, you know, we have to go back to regulated economies where enough was a mathematical concept and it was calculated. And now we are so afraid of these regulations and so on, especially, you know, in the Anglo-Saxon world. And I was actually making a plea for going back to regulated economies. Yeah. And what I got from the chapter was the notion that if we think that sustainability, living within the limits of the environment and stopping destroying biodiversity, if we think that this involves a loss of the things that we want and like, then it will be very difficult for us to do. But if we 
understand it instead as moving from a state of almost constant dissatisfaction generated by consumer capitalism and instead into an attentive a sense of what it is that is enough for us and the things that really matter to us. So the journey that we need to go on is not to say, well, our happiness is secured by infinite consumption and we're going to have to restrain ourselves, but instead to say our happiness really comes from friendship, from an appreciation of nature, from art and from culture, and that if we were less caught in the more of acquisitiveness and consumerism, we would have more attention to pay to those things which in the end are enough. So that was for me another angle on that chapter. But look, how appropriate for us to end, Eche, on talking about a chapter where what I got out of it and what you put into it are slightly different because that's the way this book works. It's It's got so much in it and and it allows you as the reader or allowed me as the reader to to turn it into the book it needed to be for me. So thank you so much for writing it and thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you, Matthew. Thank you. It was nice to finish on that chapter that we don't really th- say the same things because this book is for people to read and take out their own, you know, togetherness. So yeah, thank you very much. It was a pleasure. That's it for this episode of Bridges to the Future. We'll be back soon with more insights and analysis. But if you've enjoyed this conversation, I'd be so grateful if you could rate and review it in your podcast app. But for now, thanks from me, Matthew Taylor. This was a Tempo and Talker production for the RSA. We are the RSA. We enable the game changers of today to shift systems, challenge norms, and create impact where it's needed most. Visit the rsa.org slash approach to find out how. And let's make change happen.